Good morning. Um, my name is Jerry Letourneau, one of the elders here at uh, Community Covenant Church. And as uh, Tanya mentioned, uh, it, whether you're online or here in person, we want to welcome you. And we're thankful that you're here to worship with us this morning as we continue in our teaching series that we're titling, I Am. Last week, uh, we saw that God told Moses that his name was I Am Who I Am. And this has become the very foundation where seven times in his gospel, John records Jesus using the, these words, I Am, to describe himself. Last week, we looked at John 6, where Jesus said, I am the bread of life. And this morning, we are going to be continuing and looking at John 8 and verse 12, where Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. I'd like to take a moment before we begin in prayer. And as we do, I often think of... Uh, something that was said by a gentleman named E. Stanley Jones, who was a Methodist minister and a missionary. And he would say that uh, prayer is our, our surrendering to God's will. And he would use this interesting illustration. He would say, if I'm in a boat and I throw an anchor line to the shore, am I pulling the shore to me or am I pulling myself to the shore? And he would use this as an illustration to say that prayer is not pulling God to do my will, but it's the aligning of my will towards his. And so with this in mind, <clears throat> let's just take a moment in prayer before we begin. <clears throat> Our Father, we thank you as we gather together this morning as a church to worship you. And when we do, we, in our quietness, we realign our thoughts to realize that you are the creator of all that is and that you hold the universe together by the will of your power. We come to, this, to you this morning as a, as a church, as a people, and our desire is to worship you and to walk more closely with you. We join together as a people, as a body, as those so many of us in our church who come before you with their, with their needs. And ultimately, Lord, you know these needs and you know what these prayers are. And so we stand together with our church family before your throne <clears throat> in prayer. We ask, Lord, that you would speak to each one of us this morning. And we ask that in this time together that we're together that you would be glorified through Christ our Lord. <clears throat> Amen. So as we begin this morning, we're going to be looking at John 8. But before we do, I'd like to actually flip back one chapter to John chapter 7 and kind of set the scene for what we'll be looking at this morning. And when we do, we find ourselves at the time of the feast of the, uh, the Jewish Feast of Tabernacles. And as uh, most males would have been doing at this time uh, in Israel, Jesus is making his way from Galilee down to Jerusalem in order to attend the Feast of Tabernacles was uh, celebrated as a reminder of the Israelite ancestors who had lived for 40 years in the desert or in the wilderness of Sinai. And if you're not uh, familiar with the story, 
Moses has led the entire uh, nation of Israel out of captivity. And they're on their way to the land that God had promised their forefather, Abraham. But the people were uh, continually complaining and disobeyed and distrusted God. And so he grew tired of it all. And he vowed that this entire generation would never enter into the promised land. During this time, when they were in the wilderness, the people would live in their own little tents that were kind of set up as a, a massive camp with the tabernacle at its center. And the tabernacle was the place where the priests would offer sacrifices to God. And it's here that the presence of God actually resided. None of these were uh, fixed structures. All of them, including the tabernacle, were tents that could easily be disassembled and carried with them whenever they relocated. And they did relocate because throughout those 40 years, God would command that the entire Israelite population would follow him through the wilderness. And the way that God uh, would lead them was by providing a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And as the cloud and the fire moved, the Israelites would dismantle their camps and they would follow. And from that generation on, the Feast of Tabernacles was instituted as a reminder of how God had led the ancestors, their ancestors through the wilderness. As part of the uh, feast, the attendees would create little shelters made from branches, and then they would live in them for the seven days, the entirety of the feast, and this was to be symbolic of the portable tents that they had lived in while in the years of the wilderness. Sometimes these little uh, uh, boots, uh, these little uh, shelters were called booths, and actually even sometimes the, uh, the uh, Feast of Tabernacles is actually referred to as the Feast of Booths. And as another uh, part of this uh, feast would be the daily lighting of four oil-fed lamps that were located in the temple in the area that was called the Court of the Women. These lamps were huge menorah candelabras that were made of gold and stood some 75 feet tall. The Jews actually called this the illumination of the temple. And it's said that the light of these candelabras illuminated not only the temple, but even a, a part of the surrounding city. These were lit on each of the seven nights as a reminder of the pillar of fire that had guided Israel in their wilderness journey. It was the presence of God that actually led them, but his presence was manifested in the light that came from the pillar. And it was here on the last and the greatest day of the feast, in the midst of this great illumination of the temple, that Jesus stood up and proclaimed to the crowd, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And we're not told if he said this as the candelabras were being lit, or if it was when they were fully lit and the light was shining throughout the temple, or maybe it was even after they were extinguished. Maybe Jesus was suggesting that the light that he gives never goes out. We're not told. But you can imagine yourself in ancient Jerusalem during this feast 
with these massive menorahs giving off all of the light, commemorating the presence of the light of God, and then hearing Jesus' words in the temple courtyard when he said, I am the light of the world. How would the crowd that was there have understood this? Did you know <clears throat> that God's very first recorded words in the Bible are, let there be light? According to Genesis 1, creation was formless, empty, and in darkness. And God said, let there be light. And that started the process of his bringing creation out of this vacuum of empty darkness. And it's interesting, by the way, to note that the light that is spoken of was not the sun or the stars because those were not actually created until later in the chapter. There's a word in Hebrew that's often associated with the light of God and the word is Shekinah. It means the presence of God dwelling in the midst of his people. This is not like an indwelling presence like would be with Christians who are filled with the Holy Spirit. This was an external presence. This invisible Shekinah or presence was made visible to the Israelites by that pillar of fire. We see this in Exodus 13 where it says, And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light. The people saw the cloud and the fire that was leading them, but it was actually the Lord that went before them. There are many references in the Bible to God being light, and it's important that we at least make this connection. A few of these. In Psalm 27, the Lord is my light. In Isaiah 60, the Lord will be your everlasting light. Job 29, by his light I walk through darkness. Micah 7, when I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. And we also see that not only God, but also the Messiah is also depicted as light in the Bible. And some of these actually might be familiar to us from the Christmas season. In Isaiah 9, in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people when walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. And then from Isaiah 42, I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will make you a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles to open the eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. So <clears throat> we've taken a couple minutes just to look at the Israelites in, in their wilderness journey, and then also uh, how the Feast of uh, Tabernacles uh, commemorates this. And, you know, it's, when we read our Bibles, it's helpful for us to have this understanding of the setting of the events and how they actually occurred. And what I've found for myself is that the more that I understand the settings, the richer the story is for me, and the more that I'm able to get out of the text. And so with all of this as a background, it helps us to visualize the scene this morning in John 8. 
those attending the festival, they were very aware of this Shekinah glory that was present in the pillar that had led the people in Israel. And with the backdrop of these massive candelabras lighting the temple and the thousands of people that were there at the festival, Jesus cries out, I am the light of the world. The stage could not have been set any better. Those who heard him knew exactly what he was saying. He could not have made a bolder declaration than that. Jesus was claiming to be God who would redeem his people. His, to his hearers, the words, I am the light of the world, would be the same as him saying, I am God. And if you read on a little bit further in the chapter, you'll see that these uh, religious leaders who heard him were very certain of what he had said. In John uh, 10.33, when they wanted to stone uh, Jesus, he asked them, what is the claim that you have against me? And they said, because you being a man, make yourself out to be God. And when he was on trial before the Sanhedrin, the high priest, almost in a rage, said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God, tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. Even his enemies understood very clearly that Jesus was proclaiming himself to be God. Jesus said, <clears throat> I am the light of the world. And then he continued on to say, whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Just as the Israelites had followed the cloud of the pillar of fire, in the same way Jesus was calling the people to follow him, that they might have the light of life. If you recall uh, last week, we looked at the opening verses of John's gospel, where John writes that Jesus is the Son of God who existed from eternity past. And in that same chapter, we skip down to verse 4, John writes, In him, that is Jesus, was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. God is the source of life. God himself is life. This verse in John 1 says that within the very person of Jesus existed the life that's the light that is the life for mankind. All of the darkness, evil, and the sin in the world, and even in the demonic world, could not extinguish this light. When we look at this verse from John, along with the uh, verse uh, that we are looking at this morning, Jesus' mission of redemption comes together. Jesus brought the light of God into this world in John 1.4, and therefore whoever follows him will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life from John 8.12, this morning's verse. Those who follow him have the light of life. Those who do not follow him live in spiritual and moral darkness. Jesus never presents a third alternative. In John 3.16, a verse that all of us uh, are very familiar with, Jesus said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son so that whoever believes in him would not perish but would have everlasting life. It's a passage that's very familiar to us, but what's not 
that's familiar to us, is when we thumb down two more verses, Jesus says, whoever believes in him, the Son, is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Again, there is no third choice. And we see this over and over in the Gospels. Jesus always presents us with a choice that leads to life, and the rejection of that choice leads to death. There is never a third option. Whoever believes is not condemned. Whoever does not believe is condemned because they have not believed in the Son. And then the next verse in 19, John goes on to say, this is the verdict. Life, excuse me, light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Here again, we see this reference to the choice between light and darkness. The Bible depicts God as light in his attributes, like holiness, goodness, knowledge, wisdom, hope, and even life itself are depicted as, as God's attributes as light. By contrast, darkness is associated with evil, sin, despair, and death. In John 12, 46, Jesus says, I have come into the world as a light so that no one who believes in me would stay in darkness. Our world is in darkness, right? We don't have to watch much more than 15 minutes of the news to realize that. There's brokenness, suffering, abuse, all kinds of evil. And I doubt very much that tomorrow's news is going to be much better than today's news. Apart from Christ, there is no hope, either in this world or in the world to come. Without Christ, mankind is in darkness. He offers light in our darkness, life, eternal life to all who follow after him. Just as the pillar led the Israelites to the promised land, so also the light of the world will lead us to eternal life with him. But we have to follow. This is not a light that's to be looked at or admired. It's a light to be followed. The light will direct our steps and protect us, but, but we have to follow. There is another significant piece to all of this that so far has been left unsaid. In Matthew 5.14, Jesus said to his disciples, you are the light of the world. It's easy for us to accept Jesus saying, I am the light of the world. But now he's telling us, his followers, that we are the light of the world. The torch has been passed. When Jesus said, whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life, this is what he meant. The torch has now been passed. While he was in the world, Jesus was the light of the world. But now we who are his followers have become the light of the world. We have no light of our own, 
right? Apart from our relationship with Christ, we would be in darkness. We would be separated from God. But through the power of his Holy Spirit that's living within us, there is a light that shines through us, and that light is his light. Just like the moon doesn't have a light source of its own, but just simply reflects the light of the sun, so it is with us. His light shines through us. It's not of our own light. And notice that Jesus does not say that you are a light to the world, but he says that you are the light of the world. There are many, many lights that shine in our world, many lights that bring authentic, physical, emotional, psychological help to so many that are in need. And we should never minimize this, right? These are authentic and tremendous blessings to those who receive them. And with their light, a lot of darkness will be dispelled in these people's lives. But only the light of life can dispel all of the darkness. He is the only true hope for mankind. He is not a light of the world. He is the light of the world. And this is the light that's in us if we are his followers. Elaine and I have uh, six children, four of whom still live at home. They're at the age where the decisions that they make could very easily impact uh, them for the rest of their lives. And we're always trying to impress on them that the best possible life that they could live out of all of the options that are out there for them, the best possible path that they could take is the path that God has planned for them. Many times I've said to them that old adage that life is like a coin. You can spend it any way that you want, but you can only spend it once. And the best possible way that they could spend it is the way that God has planned for them to spend it. We encourage them to pray every single day that God would lead them to be in the exact place where he has planned for them. And this, of course, applies to each and every one of us. God has a specific path of life that he's ordained for each and every one of us. He has a plan for each of our lives. If we're in his will for our lives, if we're living the life that God has planned us to live, then regardless of the circumstances, there's no better place for us to be. There's no better life for us. It may not be what we had envisioned. In some cases, it not, may not be what we would have chosen. And there's probably going to be a lot of questions along the way. But if it's God's plan for our life, there's no better place for us to be. Proverbs 3, 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all of your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all of your ways, acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. Notice it says that he will direct our paths. He is leading, we're following. Some of you, when you were younger, may have memorized uh, Psalm 23 as a child, the psalm of the great shepherd leading his flock. The Lord is my shepherd, and I shall not want. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. 
He's leading. He is leading. We're following. And then in verse 4, the psalmist says, Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. The shepherd leads him right through the valley of death. He doesn't go around it. He goes right through it. But notice that death is only a shadow. It's not utter darkness. For those who follow the light of life, we will never walk in darkness. Even death is only a shadow. So as, as we bring all of this to a close this morning, if there's one thing that seems to stand out, it's that Jesus is inviting us to follow him. So I ask you this morning, where do you find yourself in this invitation to follow? In Jesus' parable of the sower, he said that some would hear his call to follow and they would receive it with joy, but it only lasts for a while and when difficulties come, they walk away. Some would start to follow, but the dreams of this world are more appealing than his invitation and so they never really become very serious about following after him. And in time, the invitation is drowned out by the cares and the desires of this world. If you're honest with yourself, is this where you are this morning? For some, you may be faithfully continuing to follow after him, even in the valleys of life where you happen to find yourself. The struggles of life, broken relationships, wondering if you're going to make it through the day. If this is where you find yourself this morning, I want you to listen to Jesus' words. Consider the birds of the air, they do not sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn, and yet God feeds them. How much more valuable are you than the birds? And do not set your heart on what you'll eat or drink. Don't worry about it, for the pagan world runs after all of these things, and your Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God, and all of these things will be given to you. If this is where you find yourself this morning, let these words of Jesus be an encouragement to you. He knows where you are. And then for some, perhaps you've never given much thought to all of this. You come with your spouse or your friend, maybe your parents make you come, but you're not really sure about all of this religious stuff. What I'd like to say to you is that perhaps more than anything else, what grounds my faith is Jesus' resurrection from the dead perhaps more than anything. Paul, who wrote almost one-third of the New Testament, met the risen Jesus face to face. In one of his letters, Paul tells his readers that after Jesus' resurrection, that he had appeared to more than 500 people at one time. And he said most of them are still alive as if to say, go and ask them for yourself to see if this is true. Jesus came into the world and he died on the cross for my sins and for your sins so that we could have eternal life. And by his death, he satisfied the justice of God. 
And to confirm all of this, God raised him from the dead. Jesus is inviting you today to follow after him. He didn't say you have to keep the Ten Commandments in order to have eternal life. He said, whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. I encourage you today, in the quietness of your heart and your own time, if you've never asked him before, tell him that you want to be his follower. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this time together this morning, and we thank you for your word that makes it possible for us to know you. We ask that you would reveal yourself to us in new and refreshing ways, that we might know you better, that we might walk more closely, and that we would become the people that you would have us to be. We ask that our lives glorify you. And we ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen.